0: If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of
1: reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We are always, I believe, truly blessed with our guests. We get such wonderful guests on. Well, We're in for a treat now because we have Professor Paul Moon, and I want to just read out for you his degrees. Paul has a Bachelor of Arts, History and Political Studies degree from the University of Auckland, New Zealand. He has a Master's of Philosophy from Massey University. He has a Master of Arts from Auckland University of Technology. He has a Doctor of Philosophy from Massey University. And he has a Doctor of Literature from Auckland University of Technology. Think about that. Two master's degrees and two PhDs. Professor Moon, good morning.
0: Good morning. How are you?
1: Well, I'm very well. And um, I have met you. I have enjoyed uh, meeting you. I have enjoyed your work immensely. Uh, the books of yours that I have read, I have not read them all. You're prolific.
0: Yes, yes I'm quite busy.
1: Yes, and we'll possibly get on to that because, well, let's do it now. You don't have to write books, do you?
0: No, no, it's not a requirement for anything, really, no.
1: And yet you can't stop.
0: Um, Well, I'm going to stop at one point, I know. Um <sighs> As, as you get older, I think a lot of things start to slow down. Someone once described it as gradually losing your literary libido. Um, I'm not quite sure if that's a good analogy. But um, but no, there's certainly a lot of topics that that haven't been investigated. And one of the problems living in a country with a relatively small population is that there aren't many people who do history. No, nice. So same number of topics, but many fewer people actually addressing them.
1: And of course, it can be readily captured. Yes, that's right. I worked out. I briefly was at a university, and I worked out like you could become an expert in any field in New Zealand in about six months.
0: Um, yeah, possibly a few more months. <laughs> that to that a few more decades, but um,
1: well, for the purposes of the media, um, yeah. tell me, it must be extremely hard work writing a his a, a book on history and lonely like writing writing is lonely because you're sort of doing it in your own head but I think history must be extremely hard work because you're sort of fossicking around and in, in dusty archives
0: it is um, there in a very general sense there are two sorts of history writers one of them is the sort that simply goes online and, and looks at other books and journal articles and gets bits from them and does a patchwork quilt of that and, and they've got their book and those books you can usually tell are derivative and a bit dull quite frankly um, but some of us spend a lot of time going through the archives as you say and it is laborious and you can spend many days weeks and months on something that will never see the light of day that you you explore and you explore and it, it never gets published because it doesn't it doesn't fit into the book, but you have to do it. You have to make sure you've un- upended every stone and examined every bit of evidence so that when the book's finished, it's as comprehensive and as representative as it possibly can be.
1: But it must be wonderful too, because when you're doing this, I imagine you sort of get to know your topic and the people extremely well. And they sort of life because you're reading contemporaneous accounts and that must be very enriching
0: well it's one of the principles of history is that every document you come across has a motive and the first thing you have to do is work out who wrote the document and what their motive Mm. was no Mm. no no documents spontaneously appear and so a lot of the work is as you say getting to know people in the sense of discovering what their motives are Mm. and you'd be amazed if you look back, say, at your own emails over the last five years, every single email, we could probably work out roughly what your motives are. They're yes. a real revelation. It's quite frightening in a way for some people. But um, so so a lot of the work is involved in trying to work out why this was written, the purpose for it, who's the intended audience, what did the author hope to achieve by writing this letter or this report or whatever. And that shines through after a while.
1: I had a funny experience of history because I um... – wrote a book once about my life and I get, I had, you know how we have stories that we tell ourselves and we tell other people mm. and I believed them to be true, but I was very conscious of politicians and prominent people who had told a story say from their childhood, which turned out to be not accurate mm. or the complete reverse. And I went through what I'd written, and I think I took out 50% of it. If I could, I mean, truly, because I thought, huh, I I can't guarantee this is how it actually played out. Because in your mind, I've retold that story, I've retold that story, I've retold that story, and each time I've told it, I've embroidered it, I'm sure. (laughs) And that's the problem that we have, isn't it? Even our own life.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And... and We can't have an accurate history of our own life that we
0: lived. We believe we do. We're convinced that our recollection is correct. And look, I've got a good memory. I remember what happened. Um, I mean, there's a simple test. Uh, Imagine if you're in a dark country road um, with your your wife and you, nighttime, it's raining, no cell phone coverage. You get a flat tire. Um, You get out and change it and you get cold and wet and muddy and grubby and you go inside and you're a bit back in the car and you're a bit frustrated and your wife turns to you and says, you know, one day we'll look back at this and laugh. And you, you, you're you, not in the mood for that sort of comment, but it's absolutely <laughs> true. It is true. A year or two later, you laugh. Now, the event hasn't changed. Your emotional reaction to the event, you were frustrated and angry at the time. But the way you recollect it is you laugh at it. And why is that? Because what we do is we tend to reshape past experiences partly as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. So we make them less painful, less sh- We take off the sharp edges. And so our mind doesn't change the events, but it changes how we see the events. And that's very common.
1: And of course, we can take any uh, or many criminal cases, particularly high-profile murders, and you're in a court, and you're trying to establish the facts of the case, of who did what when. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely problematic. It's not necessarily straightforward. So it is, uh, and witness accounts vary. Uh, Oh, my goodness. Now, we're going to continue in this vein, but we've got uh, an immediate reason for having you on. And it's our friend, I use that word in quotes, Dr. Paul Hunt. He's a human rights commissioner. And there is a report published by the Human Rights Commission, and it's called, and please, if I get it wrong, correct me, Maranga Mai. Have I got that near enough?
0: That's the, that's the name of the report, yes.
1: Marangamai. And what it says is its uh, subtitle is the dynamics and impacts of white supremacy, racism, and colonisation upon Tangata Whenua in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And in the introduction to the report, there's a message from the Chief Human Rights Commissioner, Paul Hunt, and it's this. I just want to take the time for readers because they possibly won't have heard of this report. And he says, "Marangamai is a feminological report, meaning it focuses on the experience of racism, colonisation and white supremacy by Tangata whenua. Through this research and narrative, Tanga will speak. The Commission is honoured to publish their research, analysis, stories, and views. Marangamaya provides a crucially important perspective on extremely challenging issues, which will define our for years to come. The report compels us to acknowledge the racism, and white supremacy that was woven into the fabric of British colony, of the British colony as immigrants settled in these islands. There's only one authentic way of confronting this element in our collective history. Tell the truth. Listen with an open heart. Look for fair and peaceful reconciliation. Imagine a future of partnership and promise, and commit to action and justice. This report contributes to the first step, truth-telling. It's wonderful, Dr Moon, isn't it, Professor Moon Paul? It's wonderful, truth-telling.
0: Yes, and and I, I just wish that the Commission had taken that advice when it produced the report. It would have been helpful.
1: It's extraordinary to read that and to read beside it your report. And then not only to read your report, Paul, but the story around your report. For example, who wrote Marangamai is a state secret. Hmm.
0: This is astonishing. This is a, 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 a government <laughs> agency. Um, and, and, I, I, look, I came across this report because someone forwarded it to me and they said, you ought to read this. And I'm okay, well, I have a look at it. Um, the more I looked through it, the more concerned I became um, and then horrified. And I thought, who wrote this? If this was a high school history assignment, it would have failed. It, it fails at the very basic level of, of correct historical analysis. And I thought... How on earth could this happen? So I I wrote to the commission saying, look, there are some quite severe deficiencies with this report. They said, Would you would you like to meet with a committee to discuss it? I said, Well, I don't know if discussing it would be adequate. I said, I'm I'm happy to do a just to do a quick review of it. I said that would be helpful. Um and this is
1: after it was published already.
0: Well, after it's published, yeah. And I, um so I I the more I reviewed it, I thought, look, I, this this could take years because it's just that bad. the 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 deficiencies are so bad. So I looked at one area, one very small area, just a, I think a handful of paragraphs in the report, and focused on that. And just as as an illustrative example of how bad the report was in every respect, and I needed. In order to do this review, I needed some information. I thought, well, what are the credentials of the authors? And of course, the authors aren't listed on the report. So I wrote to the Human Rights Commission, and they they said we'll treat this as an official Information Act request. And we—that's well, convenient. Saves saves me the hassle. I mean, this is this is, this is this is absurd. It's extraordinary. It is. Um. Now, the the they then said we can't tell you because. for for all sorts of bogus reasons the authors have to remain anonymous and i thought that's odd Um, i then said well look what peer review process did the report go through because when you commission a report and the human rights commission obviously paid i don't know how much um, but it would have been substantial they they paid for this report you get a peer review you get one or two people who are experts in the field to review the report say this is this is good this needs work you've missed something here and so on and i said was the report peer reviewed and and they wrote back saying yes it was i said who peer reviewed it again they can't provide the information i said can you show me you know, redact the names but show me the peer review report and they said oh it was informal an informal peer review well i've never heard of an informal peer review. If you have a a, a document produced by a government agency, a major piece of research, the peer review is written and they appear not to have any records of that. I had questions about some of the sources used. There were interviews cited. I said, can I have a transcript of the interview? Um, They said, no. I said, "Can, can I have, again, all the names redacted, but just where are the documents? They can't provide them. And the more I looked into it, just in, in term, this is just not the content, but just the process. Uh, something smelt odd. We don't know the names of the people who wrote it. We don't know if there was a peer review or not. The Human Rights Commission gave two answers to that. One there was, one, well, sort of there wasn't. We don't know what the actual sources were in some cases because they won't provide that. So that was a very bad beginning to to things. And then it got worse, of course, when you start looking at the content.
1: The, the extraordinary thing is, is if you were Paul Hunt and the commission, you and I would die of embarrassment.
0: Um, I certainly would. I, I, I Again, I was scratching my head wondering how this could be published. I did contact Paul Hunt and he asked for some more information, um, but he wasn't prepared to accept anything wrong in the report. Now, even regardless of what your ideological view is on anything, uh, there are some clear deficiencies, both in method, approach, analysis, research, that these are obvious deficiencies. Not to admit that is a bit concerning, but I think ideology overtook evidence in this case.
1: Yes, and I mean, Mr Hunt has set himself up, hasn't he? Because he's made the claim of truth-telling Mm. you and I would be much I'm sure with your history you're a bit more circumspect you know you're doing your best and uh, you're always open to be corrected and you're open and transparent with your references and the processes that you followed and your name is on it but here is this report set up as telling the truth and yet We can't know who wrote it. We can't know who peer-reviewed it. We can't know the process of the peer review. We can't see the contents of the peer review. And as soon as you start reading it, you realize it's hokum. And I just want to read on a bit further for um, listeners because uh, Mr. Hunt goes on to say this. Many countries have troubled pasts and some like Canada and South Africa, have established a process to help them heal and chart a way forward. Marangamai takes a leaf out of their book and recommends that for a three-year period, a Truth, Reconciliation and Justice Commission is established. This time-bound commission would hear and document Tanga Whenua's experience of colonisation, racism and white supremacy and recommend meaningful pathways towards reconciliation and justice by 2014. The role of the Waitangi Tribunal is extremely important and groundbreaking, but hitherto it is mainly focused on specific treaty settlements. A Truth, Reconciliation and Justice Commission has a larger vision of truth-telling, national reconciliation, and constitutional reform. So this, this is the first step of truth-telling, to lead to constitutional reform. And yet we <laughs> it's a bit overblown for a piece of work and we can't know who wrote it.
0: Yes, and and look, if it was anonymous for whatever reason, um, and I'm prepared to accept that there are reasons, I don't know what they are, I don't think they can be good ones. You mentioned the Waitangi Tribunal, people who produce reports on similar topics for the tribunal have their names on those reports, and those reports are peer-reviewed, and they're open to scrutiny and analysis and criticism. That's puzzling that this Human Rights Commission report isn't. But putting that aside, the issue of the truth itself, the way it's framed in those statements is concerning, because anyone, as you pointed out, who's involved in history knows that you you don't get the absolute truth. You strive for it, but there will be shortcomings in your research. There has to be, Mm. because the evidence is incomplete. you you don't have full evidence about the past. We only have the surviving fragments of that evidence. Mm. So we have to assemble as best we can a sense of what happened based on the surviving evidence. But to make proclamations about truth and so on really suggests that you're divorced from understanding what history is.
1: Paul Hunt's an academic. So he was a professor of law. I think he's got a law degree from Cambridge or Oxford. Um, it's not like he shouldn't be aware of the research process, research method, of sifting facts, of a philosophy of epistemology, and the difficulties with it. Is it? He's no, not a, and he, he, he's not a slack.
0: No, and this is one of the points I raised in my review of their report. Is. Um if you look at the sources they've used, anyone dealing with New Zealand history ought to know the main sources, the main bodies of documents, as well as the main publications. And I was staggered when I went through the, the bibliography for this report by the Human Rights Commission. They 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 focus in part of it on colonization and yet they haven't referred to the main published works on it. They haven't referred to the vast body of documents that exist that are readily available. Great Britain Parliamentary Papers, the the records of the government of New South Wales going back to the beginning of the 19th century. Um, These vast repositories which give detail about motive, about the approach to colonisation. And none of these are referred to. The major texts, people like, um, well, texts like Ward's A Show of Justice, which came out in the early 70s, which is a a seminal work on colonisation, a very sound robust piece of academic research. They don't draw on that. What they do use uh, really accounts that you'd, you'd have to say, in a lot of instances, are uh, second-rate sources. And you can just read the titles of them. You can see that these are um, very much ideological pieces. So the absence of, of the source material, the absence of evidence as a foundation for that report is staggering. And I, I was, it's another area of severe deficiency with it.
1: You, as you talk, and fair enough, I read your report twice, most carefully because I enjoyed it. You've got a wonderful prose style, and it was an area that I didn't know anything of. But it's strange because you write it academically and appropriately, but underpinning it, I sensed that you were incensed.
0: There, there are two ways of dealing with versions of the past, depending on what those versions are. Typically, if you come across a version of, of an event that's different from yours, you, you try to learn why is it different? Why does someone see it differently from me? And you, you try to look at how they came to that conclusion, how they've assembled the evidence and so on. But underlying all that is that the, the source you're looking at hopefully is truthful. The person who wrote that article or book hopefully has a desire to find out what happened and why. In this case, and I focused on just one small aspect of Marangamai, which is the, the section dealing with the doctrine of discovery, um, it was absolutely false. This isn't about interpretation. This isn't about one source versus another. This is about people who are promoting an idea that is completely false. And I've had historians contact me since saying they're staggered that anyone would promote this idea of the doctrine of discovery applying to new zealand i have history teachers from around the country contacting me saying they they've been told they have to teach this now because it appears in a human rights commission report even though they know it's not true so this is something that that is beyond normal debate this is something that's just patently false and it's been propagated as being true in this this curious report
1: you wouldn't expect it in a Western democracy. I mean, like you say, we all make mistakes. We get things wrong. Um, we can believe things to be true, and we can write a report for a government department. We can believe it. We'll die in the ditch believing it. The government department gets a critique such as yours and quietly shelves it, puts it aside, dies of embarrassment and says that was a mistake. Uh, these guys are immune to any criticism.
0: Yes, the response is the, the typical response, I suppose, in a way. Um, they say, well, look, that's your interpretation. And yes. that's quite frankly not good enough. Yes, no. everyone has an interpretation of the past, but this goes way beyond the idea that, well, one person looks at it this way, another person looks at it that way. Mm. This is a case where they're talking about a particular doctrine applying to New Zealand's colonisation and absolutely it did not, and I've provided all the evidence for that, and they haven't provided one piece of evidence, not one fragment, to get say this. to the contrary.
1: Let's get into this, because this is I realise what you did now, and I appreciate it more, because when you read uh, I don't know, it's 160 pages, it's quite a big report 162 pages in total, and It's almost like every paragraph has got a wrong thing in it. And what you've done is saying, my God, if I wrote a critique of this thing, it would be a thousand pages long. And so you have focused on one particular thing to show you how egregious that is, and you can do that comprehensively. But I think the point you'd make is this is not the only bit that's wrong.
0: No. and. I mean, look, I did all this in my own time. I don't get paid to do it, no. um, and it consumes a lot of hours. But it was necessary to correct the record because it was so far wrong and so misleading and potentially problematic in that it starts to enter the bloodstream. Yes. These suggestions, and they start to circulate. And look, I've seen this happen. And um, this idea of the doctrine of discovery is one example where it's it's frequently talked about tell us
1: what that is let's dive into your report now because we've done the throat clearing we can get to the essence of it
0: yes well what what the human rights commission is saying is that in the late 1400s okay so bear that in mind europe didn't know about new zealand's existence until 1642 but in the late 1400s the catholic church issued a series of edicts or papal bulls or pronouncements basically saying that and this is in the wake of Columbus's discoveries new world if you go to a non-european or non-catholic country you have the right to declare sovereignty over that country to subjugate its people to extract wealth from it and so on so it's an invasive so-called doctrine now that's that's the doctrine of so-called doctrine of discovery it's it's based on some papal bulls in the late 1400s what the Human Rights Commission has said is, ah, that proves that that was the British approach to New Zealand in the 19th century, that it came here to control the country, subjugate the indigenous population, strip the country of resources, or whatever else. Um, joining those dots is absolutely false. And I've outlined the main points in the report as to why that is. Firstly, and this is something actually a, a specialist on, on Catholic history contacted me recently, and she said, look, she... she Read the reports that she could not believe how naive the writers of it were. These papal bulls weren't the sort of announcements that all of Europe suddenly followed. Quite the contrary. These papal bulls were efforts by the Vatican to catch up with what was already happening. The Spanish were um, getting involved in colonies in the New World, and the church said, Oh, look, you're doing this. Maybe think about this. So they had no force, really. The second point is the particular papal bulls that the Human Rights Commission has zeroed in on were overridden the following year. So 1493, oh there's a papal bull comes out about this sort of intervention. 1494, Spain and, and Portugal ignore it and come up with a treaty of themselves of, of their own to deal with intervention. And by the 1500s, the Catholic Church is saying the opposite, saying if you go to a country, you have to preserve the cultures and the people and protect them and not not do these sorts of things. You won't read that in the Human Rights Commission report either. So that's that's the first part of it, that this idea that the Catholic Church directed colonisation is wrong, and it's dealt with in a highly selective way. Now, that would have been bad enough if, if it had been left there, but then the Human Rights Commission report goes further to say that it effectively influenced the colonisation of New Zealand. Now, that's wrong for a host of reasons. The, the British government in the 19th century had no was under no influence whatsoever from the Catholic Church, none whatsoever. There's not a single scrap of evidence for centuries beforehand that the the, the English colonial officials and later British colonial officials followed this doctrine. It wasn't even seen as a doctrine. That's, that's the first stage. The second stage, of course, is if you look at how British policy was formed, and anyone who's studied this or read about it will know that in the early decades of the 19th century, it was very much a chaotic process two key select committee reports from 1837 and 1838 in in london should have been referred to because they show how policy was developed in in parts in relation to new zealand there was no intent to dominate the indigenous population there was no intent to apply some sort of doctrine of discovery then there's the hard evidence the evidence and cook's instructions that he was given in 1768 the year before he arrived in New Zealand, James Cook was told, if you find New Zealand occupied, you can only claim sovereignty, and this is the key phrase, with the consent of the natives. It's the exact opposite of this idea that you can conquer and subjugate people, which is the essence of that doctrine of discovery. The British said from 1768, we need consent to get involved in another colony. And of course, in 1839, the instructions for the treaty, the fact that there is a treaty itself is is proof that the doctrine didn't apply, that Britain wanted the consent of the indigenous population rather than just going in guns blazing. And there's example after example, document, evidence after evidence, circumstantial evidence, all all sorts of evidence points to one one thing, which is this doctrine has no application whatsoever in New Zealand's colonisation. And all I asked from the commission was one piece of evidence to the contrary. Just show me where I'm wrong. And if I was wrong, I'd apologise and pack up and say, look, I'm sorry, I have made a mistake. I missed out this crucial bit of evidence here or this insight there. And I'd apologise and I'd correct my research accordingly. That's what academic work is all about. You're constantly sculpting and fine-tuning what you do. But, of course, they didn't have any response to that. And that, that's the troubling part of it because I think deep down they know that a lot of the information in that report is fabricated. It's not based on history.
1: It's scandalous.
0: Well it is. I mean it's scandalous in the in the sense, firstly, that taxpayers paid for this. Secondly, that the commission refuses to accept any error whatsoever. That that's almost inconceivable. Um But also an error on this scale. And look, every historian I've talked to about this um, has said plainly they cannot believe the commission got it this wrong. And now I understand why the authors are kept anonymous, because I imagine um, if their names were released, it would be humiliating for them.
1: You're a historian, you've worked in the universities. This is now not uncommon. Is it?
0: I think that there are people um, who are interested in this issue of colonization and they issued, they're interested in, in the past and they've they've and I think they sincerely believe certain versions of the past. And that can be a problem because what they believe or what I believe for that matter is totally irrelevant. Ultimately we have to be guided by evidence. Our view of the past has to be informed and based on evidence, not on what we think happened or what our intuition tells us or whatever. And the other point, of course, is that colonization is enormously complex as a process. And it's very nuanced. It's got lots of different moving parts in this big machine. To simply say it's it's this or that, to have these very sort of monolithic black or white views of, of processes, is in itself misleading. It's it's basically simplifying and generalizing things to an extreme extent which doesn't help us understand the past it only ends up reinforcing prejudices and this is across the political spectrum it applies in the right it applies on the left and i think all that's really important ultimately as i say that we have an evidence-based approach to understanding the past what we think about it is up to us but it has to be grounded in evidence
1: um it's hard to explain or discuss or understand the enormity of this because what you have here is a fabrication
0: yes it's it's outside as i say it's outside the normal boundaries of what constitutes history and if you read histories of various topics, there, there's a, a broad range of interpretations. New Zealand colonisation is a good example. Um, and over the years and over the decades, views about colonisation changes, social views, social morals about was it good, bad, indifferent. These these things change. People bring new perspectives to existing evidence and so on. This is all part of the the apparatus of history and, and it will continue to be the case. And there, there are things we we may agree on, things we may not agree on. Um, that's fine, but this is this is not in that realm. This is something that a claim has been made that is, you can prove is completely incorrect. That's well, one hundred
1: eighty. It's one hundred eighty degrees wrong. It's like well, it is. pointing yes. in the complete wrong direction. Exactly. I'm, I know very little of history, uh, but the idea that what the Pope said in the fifteen hundreds or fourteen hundreds would impact on Britain in the 19th century, I know, is absurd. Of course. (laughs) Well, Um, it is. I mean, you'd say, hang on. Um, Tell me, what did you expect? You've written your response, which people can Google and find. What did you expect to be the response from the commission and the news media to your critique?
0: Well, i previously sent a summary of this to the Commission, and uh, their response was, I I think, disappointing is the best way to describe it. Um, They didn't accept, well, they didn't rather engage with any of the the arguments or any of the evidence. Uh, Essentially, they said, look, that's your view. We have a different view. Now, that sounds reasonable on the surface, Except that if, if you imagine this is a court case and it's a murder trial and, and um, you know, the judge finds the, the defendant guilty of murder and, and, and the defence lawyer says, well, that's your view. We interpret it differently. Well, no, no. The decision's made based on the evidence. Um, the commission seems not willing to accept the evidence. They absolutely are not willing to disclose crucial details about the report. Um, so I think that's reached a dead end there. It's a bit of a cul-de-sac in a way that you, know, you can go round and round, but you're not going to progress far. Um, there, there doesn't seem to be much interest from the media, and I think partly because it's a topic that requires a bit of analysis and a bit of thought. It's not something you can summarise in, in a soundbite. And I suspect a lot of people, they might think, well, this is history. This is old old stuff. It has no bearing whatsoever. And so there hasn't been a great deal of interest there. However, um, my review has been circulated online. I think it's had 60 or 70,000 views of it. um, My goodness. Which is interesting. And the feedback I've had, as I say, from academics, including from overseas, um, has been very supportive. And they are also surprised. A lot of them weren't aware of this Human Rights Commission report. Now that they are, um, and they've had a chance to look at it themselves, Academics with other areas of specialty are saying, "Well, look, we're, we're concerned about this part of it, and this part of it's wrong." So it's it's a it's a fundamentally flawed report. But um, in response to your question as to what the reaction is, it's it's muted.
1: I have just googled that great quote from George Orwell from 1984 because I was trying to get it accurate and I'm sure you're familiar with it, and he stated, those who control the present control the past, and those who control the past control the future.
0: That's absolutely right. Yes. And so this isn't just history. Well, no, it's not. And I think this is is one of the points about history that a lot of people aren't aware of. I mean, the the common question I I get on occasion anyway, that's that's the most common question about history I get is, why bother? Why bother studying something that's already happened? And it seems like a a fair question on the surface. But if you look at what happens in in countries where there are revolutions, one of the first things that happens after a revolution is that history textbooks get rewritten. And the Mm. reason is that, A lot of people in in positions of authority understand the absolute potency of history. Yes, it's what happened in the past, but it it plays all sorts of roles. It's part of the, the architecture of our identity. And the more we learn about history, the more intricate that architecture becomes. But if you're fed false history, then... By implication, you can start to see your identity as something that it isn't. And it's very, history is crucially important for how we see ourselves and how we see ourselves in society. It's also, a, if you like, a great instruction manual. Um, I remember when the, the the Americans invaded Afghanistan a few decades ago, and it didn't work out well. <laughs> the, the, you know, the world's biggest superpower probably um, couldn't couldn't quite subjugate this very small, arid piece of territory. If they had read their history, they would have found out, well, a bit before then, the Soviets had tried with the same result. And if the Soviets had read their history, they would have found out in the 19th century, the British had tried with the same result. So if you follow this instruction manual, you can avoid mistakes, and you can also work out, ah, this worked in the past, we'll do this, or this didn't work, we'll do this. Mm-hmm. A lot of our economic policy is based on history, that what does and doesn't work in the past. And we know, for example, um, in, in Weimar Germany, how do you solve the economic crisis? You just print more money. Well, we can go back now and look at that history and find out what happens. You get hyperinflation. Unfortunately, Zimbabwe wasn't aware of that history and it made the same mistake. The former Yugoslavia wasn't aware of that history, made the same mistake. Um, if you are aware of history, you can avoid these pitfalls. So history has use to us there, it informs our identity and it also informs the way we see the world. And that's very powerful. And so anyone who dismisses it as, well, it's just, you know, something trivial that happened in the past, that's not the case.
1: It's also very important, I would suggest, about how we see ourselves personally. Very much so. I grew up and went to school in the 60s, and I was very proud to be a New Zealander. And I was very proud of what had been achieved in New Zealand. And I was very proud of race relations in New Zealand and the welfare state and the care we had for each other, I was actually proud of our history. Um, I readily and had pointed out to me often by my teachers of the extraordinary mistakes that were made and of the terrible things that were done. So it wasn't, if you like, a sanitized view of history, but it made me feel good about my country. And it made me feel good about myself. And I've got little kids now at school. And because of work such as this, they're actually made to feel rather poorly about themselves and about their country. Because what Paul Hunt is saying is that our history, we suffer such a thing as apartheid in our past or an extreme example would be the Nazis in the past. Something happened that was terrible. And because of who you are, you have to bear some responsibility for this. And so it is having a dramatic impact on our sense of self, isn't it?
0: It is. And this is this is the power of history. I remember in the in the 1980s. Um, uh, I spent some time in, in what was then Yugoslavia, and um, it was a socialist slash communist state run by uh, being run by a dictator. I'd been there in the 70s when Tito was still alive, and there was a great deal of of patriotism. Um, the vast majority of the population very proud of being Yugoslav. Uh, um, this is in the 80s. You go you go ahead just four or five years after I was there, um, one of the most bitter civil wars in European history broke out because people decided that they didn't belong to the national group anymore. They belonged to other national groups within it. And they wanted a different way of the country to be run. They wanted independence and so on. Now, there's legitimate claims for that. But the way it played out was devastating. tens or hundreds of thousands of people killed, many hundreds of thousands of people ethnically cleansed. Um, And these things happened very quickly. This was the surprising thing for me. Last time I'd been there before the war was 1988. And just three years later, you got this virulent form of of nationalism erupting in various parts of the former Yugoslavia.
1: And history is used to justify that.
0: Of course it is. Uh, History... um, And and it's almost now the the in this case that the facts might have been absolutely true, but the way that they're assembled can result in very different conclusions. And you can see this in a court case. The evidence is available for everyone, but the prosecution, the defense, shaped that evidence in very different ways for different mm. purposes. And that's one of the reasons why historical method is important, so we don't worry about trying to convince people of things or ha- writing history with the purpose of something else. We write it simply to work out what the evidence shows us.
1: It's interesting too, Paul. Our impotence in this because, again, I feel very naive uh, in all of this because I don't want to get too dark, but it's this idea that you live in a free and democratic society and that there's a bedrock of values and that uh, uh, the search for truth is a big deal and that you have these countervailing institutions, the free press, the courts, competing government departments, uh, academics, the university system, and all this interplays and critiques itself, and in a Popperian way, um, we get closer and closer to the truth and, 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 and closer and closer to understanding each other, and we can have our disagreements and live peacefully. But this is an example of a government department. Well, more than a government department, it's actually a commission. So it's independent of government. It's set up by government. It's funded by government. It's a commissioner. He just can't be sacked. It's not subject to the sway of the minister. They're independent. But they have written a report designed to shape our future that's its purpose. It has the object of constitutional reform and of bringing two races together. And in, to achieve that end, it constructs a history. There's no other word, there's no other way of looking at it. It's, it's a constructed history. It, Even though we're living in this liberal democracy, they are immune to criticism because, and again, I don't know whether I'm asking you to agree with this, it's just occurring to me when I, why I'm incensed. They are immune to criticism because even 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you'd expect the media to seize upon this and say, this is amazing. We have one of New Zealand's most distinguished historians who is actually writing in his area of specialist expertise with a devastating critique of a Human Rights Commission report, which if it was on something arcane would be devastating enough, but this is on something that is leading to, quote, constitutional reform and truth and reconciliation and not a peep. So this idea of the criticism, open debate, it's not happening, is it?
0: It's very difficult to happen. Um, You know, there's that old newspaper editor saying, if it bleeds, it leads. In other words, um, if if you've got a a story that's confrontational or dramatic, um, particularly nowadays increasingly a visually dramatic story, uh, that's, that's going to be far more important than someone writing an historical analysis of a government commission's report on something. Uh, I, I think this would be in the too hard basket in terms of selling the story to the mainstream media. And look, that's fair enough. They've got a business to run. They've got to try to make a profit. Um, but the the issue about the truth, I think, is important. I mean, there are there are people and a number of academics, for example, who don't believe in the idea of an absolute truth. I think that, well, yeah. It's relative. What what they use this phrase, your truth or my truth, yes. um, and they say there's no absolute truth, only individual truth. Now that's obviously contradictory because they say that statement is true. <laughs> well, it can't be because it's they you know the, their own relativity denies their own claim of truth. But putting that aside, um, it can be a scapegoat approach to evidence. Um, and again, go back to the court case. You know, the, the evidence can show very clearly the DNA, the fingerprints, everything else that, you know, Johnny killed such and such. Um, now, imagine if, if, if the defendant turned around and said, well, that's, that's your truth. That, that's a silly thing to say. The evidence is the truth in this case, unless there's countervailing evidence, unless there's material that says, well, this is wrong. And look, I, I've contacted the Human Rights Commission several times to say this is, you know, as I was doing work on this, saying, this is what I'm finding. Um, they weren't open to discussing it. And I think, for me, that was the most unfortunate part of the whole episode, is that if they'd had an open mind, if they were committed to evidence, if they committed to the truth, they would have said, well, look, yes, maybe we,
1: um,
0: we should have reviewed this, or maybe we can do a correction, or whatever. But no, there's no appetite for that there. And that convinces me that their, their motives might be other than simply getting the history right. And as you pointed out, um, this is this is history that's been assembled by the commission for a particular end. And that's a risk for historians because you start shaping everything you come across in the context of what that end is. Mm. And so the evidence is, is, in a sense, dominated by your goal. So if, if and you, you might see this, um, you're probably not familiar with it, but some people might be, if you've had an argument with your spouse, and you know you might say well you did this and the, and the spouse might say well, well you did this and you know people bring up events from the past now in those moments of argument people tend to bring up events which support their side of the argument and it's not necessarily a very balanced representation if you've ever talked to someone who's been divorced recently they will tell yes. you all the faults with their partner their, yes. ex, their ex rather
1: because and how...
0: love. exactly um, and they, they, but it's not going to be a balanced account of the relationship. And if you go to the other partner, partner, they'll they'll have their view, which will be almost completely the opposite. Again, it's not balanced. So historians should try to find out what is the evidence and assemble an assessment based on that. What we've got here with the Human Rights Commission is they're saying, well, this is our goal, this is our objective. We will shape the evidence and only use the evidence that fits that. And as I say, if you if you look at the sources that we used for this Marangamaya report, not only are they are they very few sources used? Um, I would imagine, if I'd written a report like that, the the number of sources would be in the in the range of perhaps 20, 50, 80 times as many sources. That's how deficient it is. So not only are the sources deficient, but the types of sources they used are very narrow. Some of them are of marginal value historically. They tend to be secondary sources rather than primary evidence. And so on all these bases, these deficiencies come through, but it works for the Commission because they have a particular end in mind.
1: The other terrible thing about this is, as I'm reading the report that the Human Rights Commission has published, and it's in this wonderfully protected circle because... It's got its methodology, method report, I like it that you didn't use the overblown word methodology in your paper, you used the word, correct word method, but they say here this report conveys the hard truth about how Maori have experienced colonisation, racism and white supremacy in Aotearoa. It is not what most New Zealanders understand or necessarily believe as a denial of racism in Aotearoa is a long-standing legacy that many governments and settler society over successive generations have refused to accept. So the interesting thing about this is while the Commission wouldn't want to debate you, they can dismiss you because wouldn't they think of you not you individually as a racist, but as part of a racist sort of superstructure.
0: Well, it was, I was tempted actually to access all the emails through the Official Information Act request exchanged among members of the Commission. And I thought, well, no, that's, that's a headache I don't need. Um, I read enough bad things about me without adding to the pile. Yeah. Um, but but in the in the extract you just read out, think of some of the language there. Um they talk about the hard truth. Well, that's a very anti-academic term and it's actually, yes. it's questionable as opposed to what? Soft truth? As opposed to what? I mean, this is this is a, an amateur term, hard truth. Um, the idea that their work is presented as being absolutely true is itself a sign of a lack of awareness of what history is about. I don't think any historian worth their salt would say my work course, is yeah. absolutely true. Then they talk about um, the experiences that Māori have had, all 800,000 of them. I mean, this is a, a gross generalisation. It is true that there have been some some truly horrific things carried out by the Crown. There's no question about that. And it is true that, that racism has been a curse in this country. Um, but if you want to address that, address it fairly. And this is one of the, the biggest dangers of this report, because those of us who are concerned about Racism. And as I say, the, the state has exercised racism in numerous ways over the, almost two centuries now. If you're genuinely concerned about countering it, you have to start with the truth. It's like any problem that you have, you can't fudge it or exaggerate something. So if, if you want to sort out your relationship with someone, you don't start by having just a very biased view of things. You try to understand what what their view is. You try to get to the truth of the matter and build any reconciliation on truth. This is doing the opposite. This is fabricating the past. And if you fabricate it, even for what you think are good motives, it's still fabricated. You're still poisoning the well. And the idea that you can somehow get a, a, a good outcome from that is, is, I think, a bit naive. And it's, it's a bit dangerous too, because you end up poisoning the well further if it doesn't work. And it's it's a race to the bottom.
1: It's critical theory writ large in practice, isn't it?
0: That's another aspect of this, and I, I didn't address this deliberately because I just wanted to focus, on, as I say, on the evidence and what was absolutely wrong with it. Um, and, of course, the ideology is, is very clear, and this is one of the things that historians try to look out for is, is bias. Um, you can have the truth in the sense of this evidence and that evidence, but the way you arrange it can be to fortify a bias. And that certainly happens here. And you can see that there's elements of critical race theory running all the way through this. Um now, even that is acceptable if you acknowledge it and you yes. you but also it's a theory. So if you take critical race theory, one of the obligations for people use any theory is a lens through which to view the past, is to explain what that theory is, be open about it, but also explain its deficiency so you get a, a balanced view of the theory. You don't just sneak it in and, and presume it to be true and don't allow questioning. That's That's... That's unethical. No matter what theory you use, you have to say, this is the, the way we're interpreting it through this lens. But by the way, these are some critiques of that theory. These are other ways of looking at it. And give people a sense of balance. Give them an opportunity to understand the topic from different perspectives. This doesn't do that. This, this Marangamai report very much says this is the, the approach we have. It relies on generalisations, bad history, bias, misinterpretation, deficiency of evidence. And of course, what, it's going to come
1: what out. What must d- it be like, Paul? Final question: To be a student of Paul Moon, and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and you hit off with your degree, and you get a job working for the Human Rights Commission as an analyst, and you're beavering away there, <laughs> and you say to your manager oh, hang on, I think this is wrong. You couldn't do it, could you?
0: Um, well, and one of the things about our students, of course, is we, we deliberately don't tell them what they should believe. Um, no. but they we're can, very clear about they,
1: that. They, 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 hopefully, the point of it is that they can think critically.
0: Exactly. And we have students who have a whole range of views, and and some people might think well they shouldn't but no absolutely they should that's the whole point
1: but if you think critically about this report and you have a question about it it would it wouldn't be allowed given what we see of this commission
0: and i think that that was headed off in advance and this is one of the things that maybe some journalists in the future may look into is who was chosen to write it? How were they chosen? What are their credentials? What's their expertise in this area? I, I, I can't say too much, but I, I, I do know that the human rights commission, um, how do I put it? I do know that the the process was unusual. Let's call it that. And I do know that the credentials of at least one of the people who was involved in this are not ideal at all. You wouldn't have them write a report like this if, if you knew what their their credentials were, but um. The commission, I think, obviously chose these people. It, it And look, they can wash their hands of it. They can say, look, we we got experts in it. They wrote the reports, not for us to criticise it. But it is up to you, firstly, to make sure you have the right people producing this material. And crucially, if you're using any funds at all, taxpayer funds to pay for it. But even if it's a private enterprise, you do the right thing. You get a quality control. You peer review it. And you make it transparent. You know, I'm... I'm my review is open. It's it's available to the public. You can read it. You can tear it apart. You can mock it. You can do whatever you want. I'm quite happy for people to do that. Um, but I don't hide. I don't conceal my name or, or hide sources or um, pretend it was peer-reviewed when it wasn't and so on. Um, in actual fact, I had my report peer-reviewed. Um, and I'm prepared to stand by it. This is the difference. And I think, if, particularly if it's a state institution, the obligation falls on them to... Say so, these are the people who wrote it. This is the peer review process. Here's the report, and I know they can't do all that because I know from what I've been told that there is no peer review report.
1: Mm. Well, we're you're on Really Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've been talking to Professor Paul Moon about a report by the Human Rights Commission uh, called Marangamai, and how wrong-headed. It is about our history and how it points us in a different direction to which we might think a correct understanding of our history, warts and all, would want to lead us. And also the, I would suggest, the rigidity with which the Commission is approaching its report. Paul thank you so much for doing what you do. I can imagine you sometimes wonder, you could just go and write another book, but you took the trouble to write this report. The wonderful thing is that it's online and it's available. Mm. And the other thing is, we do have a new government. And so that does allow a bit of debt clearing, doesn't it?
0: Um. Well, that, that's again, that's a political issue I, I wouldn't get involved in simply because mm. it, my, my concern is with veracity and th- the value of a report. So all the political side of it um, is, is, to me, neither here nor there.
1: Mm. Well, fair comment. Paul, thank you for coming on our show. You're on Really Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We are blessed indeed to have uh, the quality of scholarship that we have in New Zealand universities, and they still will speak out and they will speak. Well, I'm going to use that phrase, truth to power. Maybe it's the wrong phrase because we have a humility about the truth. But we are still are entitled to critique, to question, and we can still do it. Here on Reality Check Radio, online, and we have wonderful people like Paul Moon uh, helping our understanding, but also pointing to something that's a bit deep and dark in the recesses of our government processes. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. Do you like what you're listening to or dislike what you're listening to? Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We'd love to hear from you. So connect with us today.